Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number three of Small Business Big Plans, the podcast where we walk with you along your journey to building your perfect business. I am your host, Jeremy Davis, and today we're going to be talking about market research. Last week, we had a great interview with Tom Crichton about building a great business plan, and now we're going to touch on market research and exactly how you can figure out what your market looks like. So stick around. It's going to be a great time. Okay, so here we are after what was a fantastic episode last week. I had a great time talking to my good friend Tom Crichton about building that perfect business plan. And next week, looking forward to talking to another great friend of mine about how to finance your business. Uh, She is very involved in the SBA lending process and helping small businesses find some finances. So before we get to the financial world, I wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about a topic that most people really don't want to deal with because it's a very difficult topic to deal with, and that is market research. That is something that is not a highlight of exactly how you want to get started going building your business. If you're thinking of an idea about a business and you're ready to get going, uh, the last thing you want to do is spend time researching the market. But I'll tell you right now, this situation that you're in is the best chance for you to limit your risk. And the biggest thing about business is the amount of risk that uh, you're going to be taking. Most people, they're just not comfortable with that risk. And if you're not comfortable with risk, small business is not the place to be. Um, but like the old uh, cliche says, you know, high risk equals high reward. Uh, and then oftentimes high risk equals uh, bankruptcy. So um, the best thing that you can do from the onset is to spend a little bit of extra time in this market research area and figure out everything that you know about your market, your competition, um, and then limit that risk. So you need to know the market inside and out before you open up the doors, um, and you're going to have a leg up on your competition. So like I said, this step is about limiting risk, and I always like to think of risk kind of like they used to describe Michael Jordan back in the day. You you know, you can't stop him, but you certainly can hope to contain him. So you're going to have pitfalls. You're going to have high risk situations. You're going to have things backfire. Um, But if you do this research right now and spend the time to understand your market and what those potential pitfalls might be, uh, you'll have a leg up on those who didn't do this uh, exact type of research. So that's what this episode is about. And you also need to realize the market that we're talking about here is not just your customers. It's just not the people who are going to be purchasing your product. It's also your competition. It's the people who are also going to be trying to capture those customers, steal them away from you. Some uh, businesses who already have your customers and you're going to be trying to chip away at what they currently have. So that is the market. There's a lot more that goes into it than just customers and competition But for where you are right now in building your business and your business plan and looking for that financing, this is a good start for you to understand what that market looks like. So what you're going to be doing with the market research is you're actually going to be blending customer behavior and economic trends. So what that means is what is your customer like? What do they typically do? What are they going to do? And blend that alongside with what are the economic trends? Because 
if your ideal customer is someone, say you're going to open up a used car lot, uh, your ideal customer is someone who's going to purchase a new car, say every two and a half years. That's great until a recession hits or until a COVID-19 pandemic hits. And that totally upends uh, who your customer is or how they act. So it's a blending. It's kind of finding that perfect balance between your customer behavior and the economic trends. And you're going to look at that over time in the past. And that's going to confirm that you have a good, solid idea uh, from the onset. The next step that you're going to be link thinking about is gathering all sorts of demographic information on your customer. And before we dive real deep into this, realize that all of this that I'm talking about, you can decide how much of this you're going to include into your business plan or how little. It also depends, like we talked about, on what type of business and what type of financing you're going to be getting. So if you're going to someone and going to be asking them to invest in your company, most of this is going to be, need to be in your business plan. You're going to need to invest a lot of time in proving to these people who have money that you want that you know your market and that you know what pitfalls you have. You know what strengths uh, your company has. You, you know what weaknesses they have. You know what opportunities exist and you know what sort of threats are out there. Um, so make sure you kind of take all of this in and decide at that point how much of it you're going to implement into that business plan. Again, if you're self-financing, none of this uh, is, is super important. Uh, in terms of gathering the financing, obviously, but it is important just so that you have a leg up on that competition. And again, you get to decide. I mean, that's the beauty of America. That's the beauty of small business, right? Is you get to decide how much of this you want to implement into what you're doing. So with that said, um, the first thing that I'm going to gather about my customers is demographics. I mean, those are very, very basic. Um, this will help you know what sort of opportunities you have, what sort of limitations um, you have on your product. And also, it's going to help you understand uh, what your weaknesses are when you look at this demographic. Um, so let's start with something simple like age, gender, income, education level, the family dynamic. Are we a single parent home? Are we a, uh, a married household? Are we a divorced household? Are we a widowed household? What sort of interests these customers have? Where are these uh, people located? All of these things are going to be important. You might not understand why right now, um, but they're going to be important in dictating exactly maybe how you do a marketing campaign or how you launch a product, or even if you do open this specific business. Um, you know, if you've had any experience in the social media world, what these demographics are pretty much is a target audience in Facebook. So if you've done any sort of Facebook advertising, direct targeted Facebook advertising, all of these things are things that Facebook are, is looking at um, to kind of make that decision on, on who your ads get seen by. So Facebook's already done this for you, but if you don't have a business and you don't have uh, a lot of money to spend getting in front of these people or even seeing the data that's going into those algorithms, um, it's going to be almost impossible. So you're going to have to do some of this yourself, and we're going to talk about some tools on how to do those things. But these are some um, demographic data that you're going to want to grab it, it, just as much as possible. I mean, the more you can find, the better. That's just a few examples.
the next thing that you need to think about is, you know, with all of this market research, what sort of questions are you trying to answer? I mean, that's from the big picture looking inward is why are we even doing this? What are the questions that we're trying to answer as we gather all of this data? Now, the first thing is what sort of demand is there? I mean, do you actually have a market for your product or service? That's uh, step number one, I would think. I mean, if you have a gut feeling or, or you're a potential customer or a current customer and, and you've said, man, I wish uh, there was just more um, taco places in our town. I can't imagine where you live that there's not enough taco places, but that could be the situation. Um, so, you know, that's one way to figure out if there's a demand. There's uh, much more nuanced ways to do that, but that's the first question. Next question is, what is your actual market size? If you live in a town of 100 people and you want to open a taco stand, your uh, market size might be 100 people uh, unless you're near an interstate. And then therefore, your your market size could be 100 plus 10,000 if you get that sort of traffic through your town. So it's really figuring out what your market size is. And again, it's as basic or as nuanced as you want to get, uh, depending on a lot of things like traffic flows. And there's just so many things you can dive into there. But what is that market size? And for most of you who are going to be doing this either with self, self-financing or a very, very small SBA loan, a lot of this can be a gut feeling. Um, th- there's no part of me that thinks that you need to invest hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands or even thousands of dollars deciding you know, exactly what your market size is down to uh, a standard deviation of three people. Um, I, it's, it's like polling in an election, right? The, it, you can get as exact as you want, but the, the more and more exact you get, the more and more it's going to cost you. And the last thing you want to do is have to pay back a $10,000 loan just before you even opened up the doors just from your market research. So some of this can be that gut feeling. Um, it was easy for me when I started my business because I was in it. I was working in the triathlon world and I saw that every single event that we put on sold out. And so that's a pretty clear indicator, right? That, um, there needs to be more triathlons. And so that's pretty much the market size research that we did to get started. Um, again, I was not very, um, skilled in building businesses and I didn't know any of this moving in. Uh, kind of had to learn it the hard way. And our goal here is to, is to help you not have to learn it the hard way. Um, the next thing is, you know, what sort of economic indicators are out there? If you're, again, if you're a small business or if you're a, um, sorry, if you're a, a used car salesman that you're going to be opening up a used car lot, what sort of income range is out there? Are you in a town, again, where the average median income is $30,000 and you're going to be selling Mercedes? Well, that might not be the best idea. Again, these things seem pretty obvious and intuitive, but when you look at it from a broad picture like that, uh, it's, it is very clear. But when you are really trying to decide what type of business or when to move into the market, uh, these things become very important. You know, what's your ideal location? Uh, if we're looking at the uh, used car lot uh, here in Greenville, South Carolina, there is a place called the Motor Mile, and there's a mile of... Uh, car dealerships, new, used, they're just tons of them. Is that your ideal location if you're opening a place that sells you know, hopefully 100 cars a month 
or 100 cars a year? Uh, probably not. Uh, your ideal location is not just how are you going to get in front of customers, but it's also how much is it going to cost you to get in front of those customers? So much like it's going to cost you a lot of money to get in front of a lot of people on a social media spend, it's going to cost you a lot of money to get in front of a lot of people from a traffic standpoint. So people who own property understand what sort of traffic patterns there are there and understand how valuable that is. So, um, but what is your ideal location balancing, um, you know, the most traffic if you're a, a walk up type business uh, with the least costs? Um, what is the market saturation point? This is uh, a pretty important one. And again, a pretty intuitive one. If you are in touch with your market already, i.e. you live there. Um, for us, you know, I, the, the big joke here in Greenville, South Carolina is anytime a pizza place opens up is, well, that's exactly what Greenville needs is another pizza restaurant. And you see it, you see a pizza restaurant open um, for whatever reason, they think that they have the best pizza or they have the best knowledge on how to do pizza or they can find the perfect location. Uh, and then the pizza place folds and it, it happens a lot. Uh, the market is saturated for pizza places. The next thing you need to think about or the questions you're trying to answer is what is your ideal pricing? Again, all of these things you're trying to figure out ahead of time. There's no way you're going to get it exactly right, but you want these things in your business plan so that the people who you're trying to get money from feel like you know exactly what you're doing. And so as you start moving forward in business, you have a, a really great understanding, a real gut feeling uh, of how your market is going to work and react to what you do. But again, what is the ideal pricing? Now, uh, we can dive into this as deep as we want because just Pricing a product uh, could be an entire semester class in an MBA program, but just realize that the best pricing doesn't mean the cheapest price that you can sell an item for. The best pricing is what is your ideal pricing for maximum profits. So if you can sell an item for a dollar more and it doesn't affect uh, the number of people who buy that item, obviously you want to do that. Um, but if you sell it for a dollar ten more, and fifty percent of your people drop off at that point because a competitor is selling it for a dollar five, then you've really priced yourself out of the market. Um, and then, what is nuanced about your market? So, this is a, a really tough one, I think, for people to grasp. You can do all the research that you want uh, about business and what is a good time to enter into the business world. But every market is different. For example, you know, for us, the triathlon market during uh, the last recession back in early uh, 2010s, late 2000s, you know, we the, we had a big recession and it affected a lot of people. But the triathlon market really wasn't affected that much because of the type of people who race in our events. Um that is a nuance about triathlon is they're active, affluent achievers. They're achievers in business. They're achievers in life. They're achievers in athletic endurance uh, accomplishments. And uh, that translates over to how they spend their money and how much recreational funds they have to spend money. Um, but again, that's a nuance and it's not something that we knew, um, or at least I was wise enough to understand was a, a really great place to be. 
but it turned out to be a, a great place to be uh, during that economic recession. Um, the other nuance about our business that we're learning right now is hosting in-person events is our business. And if you can't uh, get together with people, uh, we have no business. So uh, again, a pivot like we talked about last week with Tom Crichton uh, was needed for us right now. Um, but that's the nuances that sometimes you learn while you're you know, knee deep in business or neck deep in business. And hopefully, if you can invest the time and, and talk to some people who have done it for a while, you can learn these things ahead of time. So we've got the questions there that we're trying to answer, and those are easy. I mean, everybody knows intuitively these things. There's nothing magical here that, oh, well, you, you mean I need to figure out my ideal location? Well, duh. I mean, everyone knows that. The big problem when it comes to market research is how. How do you find these things without spending thousands and thousands of dollars? Well, there's a lot of places that you can do this kind of stuff for free. Uh, there's a lot of places you can do it uh, with favors. Um, and there's a lot of places you can do it and spend a whole lot of money to do it. Again, if you're building a tech company and you're looking to have a valuation in three years of half, uh, you know, half a billion dollars or even just five or $10 million, you need to invest in a lot of this stuff ahead of time and spend the money to do it. You need to have focus groups. You need to have interviews. You need to send out questionnaires. Um, you need to do these things, especially if you're not, you know, already filthy rich and financing this yourself. These, uh, Investors are going to want to know all of this stuff in depth, and they're going to want to make sure you understand it. But for the bulk of us, uh, we are a small business podcast for the most part. We want to do this stuff as inexpensively as possible, right? So the first place is the internet. I mean, just do a Google search. If you are thinking about being a landscaping company, start there and just type in landscaping companies near me or landscaping companies, Charlotte, North Carolina, landscaping companies, Las Vegas, Nevada, and just see what's out there. Get a feel for the market simply by looking uh, through the Google results, realizing at the same time, as you will learn in business, that the people who you see and a lot of the information you see there first is there because they paid to be there. But you're going to start getting a sense of what that market looks like from that very first Google search. And as anyone who has spent time on the internet knows, rabbit holes just go on and on and on and on, and they're everywhere. So once you make that first Google search, Follow the rabbit holes, spend an evening, uh, spend an, a weekend, spend an afternoon, just just seeing where that takes you. And what that will do is really give you a sense for who's out there, who's the player in that market, in the landscaping business for this example, um, who's got a good handle on it, what sort of things are out there. You, you, you might not realize if you're, if you're thinking, well, I just want to uh, open a small landscaping business and, and do the, the homes uh, in the neighborhoods around, you might not realize, well, there's 4,000 apartment complexes and every single one of them needs a landscaping company. Uh, and you might think, well, that's a, a, a kind of a, a side shoot of the market that I wasn't even looking at. And it, you're going to find these things out by that basic Google search. Now, as you move into um, just a, a little bit more in depth, there's tons and tons of places. And most of the information I got uh, for this 
episode is from the SBA website, so just sba.gov. Um, and I'll post this on Facebook uh, with some show notes, and it's got the links and everything in there that I'm going to be talking about. But the first one uh, to start looking at is called the NAICS, and what that stands for is the North American Industry Classification System. And you might not think that's important because you think, well, I'm a landscaping company, and I can classify that right away. Um, but just taking a, a gander through that and maybe just in the section that is more in tune with your uh, specific business, you start to learn a lot of side shoot business. So you start to learn a lot of kind of what they call adjacent businesses that you might not have understood. So if you are in a landscaping business, obviously you're going to want to have a guy to sell you equipment. You're going to want to have a guy to repair your equipment. You're going to want to have possibly... Uh, a, a contact in the uh, short-term um, workplace world. So if you've got uh, the need for some part-time employees. So looking through this in industry classification system, it just gives you an idea of all the different markets that there are adjacent to your business uh, and then not adjacent to your business at all. It's just, there's just so much knowledge there. Um, you could get lost in it, but it lists every type of business that there is in the United States. The next one is USA.gov slash statistics. Um, that's just data about American census data, uh, demographic maps, which are great to see. Uh, just to, if you're a visual person, there's a lot of great mapping tools on there to kind of get an idea of median household income in a specific area. So a lot of the stuff that Facebook is using uh, in their algorithms um, is right here on this website. Again, that's usa.gov slash statistics. Uh, census.gov is a great place, and that's all sort, sorts of statistics, uh, just from the census, obviously, about population, marriages, divorces, births. I mean, even it's got nutrition and food consumption on there, uh, access to health care. It's got education, crime rates, price indexes. Well, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And it's just one of those things where you, you might not realize you need that data or you might not need that information, um, but having it is, is, is certainly helpful. And knowing that you've gone and done that research and, and gathered even just a little bit of advice or information from that website is going to be a big thing, uh, especially if you have to, to speak in front of an investor group and explain to them why you're doing your business. And uh, just knowing that you've gone to these places and looked is, is, is a great thing. Um, and plus, I mean, any sort of knowledge, right, is helpful. And so if, if you've gone there and learned some things that might not necessarily help you, uh, or at least you might not realize it down the road, I, I guarantee you some of this will help you. And the next one is, uh, and this is one of my favorites. And again, I'll put this in the show notes on Facebook, but it's cbb.census.gov slash S B E. Now this website's amazing. This will create a report for you. So the way it works is you come up to the screen and you have a page and it says, you know, find my business. You can type in your type of business here, or it has some examples for you. Um, cl broad classifications like landscaping or personal services or restaurants. And then you can type in a zip code and it will pull up this report of that entire area. So the median household income, and then just beyond that, how many households are in there, the average number of people in that household, what the population is. Uh, and then it's geared towards your specific industry. 
um, you might learn there that, wow, there are six pizza restaurants every, I don't know, um, 12 miles in Greenville. And you might think, well, that's way too many. Uh, it's like a Starbucks, you know, there's so many Starbucks, but I guarantee you Starbucks knows exactly the right number uh, of how far to have their Starbucks apart to make life easier and to get the most uh, traffic into those locations. And they use this type of information. So this is, again, probably my favorite a bit, not only because it's super easy and super neat, but it's going to be just full. This report's going to be full of information that you can pull right off the internet and put into your business plan uh, to show that you understand that market. But again, that's cbb.census.gov slash sbe. Just a fantastic um, just resource right there. I uh, just want to run through some of these more, uh, again, all in the show notes, data.census.gov. There's going to be a lot of demographic data for you. bls.gov. Uh, will show that what that is is uh, the Bureau of Labor Force Statistics or Labor Force Statistics. They'll show earnings. Uh, BEA.gov, the Bureau of Economic Analysis. Statistics of U.S. Business. Again, this is census-driven information. It's going to be uh, data on distribution of economic impact by enterprise size and industry. Um, that one's pretty important when it comes to business, but that's uh, census.gov slash programs. Um, surveys. But again, in the show notes, this will be there for you to grab. Um, you know, th again, this list goes on and on and on, but these are some of my favorites. The other ways to, to gather market research is expensive. Um, all of the things I just showed you, free information on the internet. The other ways, which are very, very effective, if you can do them, um, but they're going to be expensive. They're going to take time. They're going to, it's just one of those things. If you're going to invest in a huge company or expect someone to invest their money into your huge company, uh, these are going to be imp more important. But again, those are surveys, questionnaires, focus groups, in-depth interviews. Um, we're not going to really dive into those. If you're a, a larger business, you'll someone will point you in that direction. But obviously, they're, they're pretty self-explanatory. Surveys, the, the larger population that you can get, the more data that you can get, uh, the more accurate your information is going to be. Questionnaires, again, uh, the more people you can get in front of. Focus groups, the same. If you're, if you're a product, um, a focus group. Now, if you're some sort of food product, a focus group can be great. That's almost like a taste testing type situation. You can do some blind taste tests, and you can do that on just people that you know. I mean, that kind of thing is fairly easy to do. But again, on a big scale, uh, you're going to have to invest a lot more time and money into these things. Um, but for me, and I have personal experience with these guys on multiple occasions, one in the very beginning, building my business, and two, acquiring uh, some properties uh, much later on down the road in my business, uh, is the SBA, the Small Business Administration, and their Front and foremost right now, helping small businesses get through this pandemic with the PPP program and the EIDL. Um, I always get that backwards. I think it's EIDL. I always want to say EDIL, but either way, the uh, Economic Disaster Loan Program. 
but there's local resources almost in every town, uh, especially if you're a, a fairly decent sized city or near a university, especially. I know in Greenville, Clemson carries uh, a great group of people who work uh, directly with the SBA and for the SBA, uh, kind of an offset of their you know, their academic programs, but they're a business and they have an office here and they help you through this whole process. Uh, and it, it's for free. And what they uh, are looking for is just you, I, I, to grow the economy of where they are. So, I mean, that's their return, right? So Clemson University invests a large amount of money in salaries and uh, resources simply to help the economy of Greenville grow, which then helps, you know, nearby Clemson grow. And, but th that's a resource that's out there for you. Um, so again, market research is important, but it's not just the customers. A lot of what we just talked about is the customers. And what we're going to talk about next is a competitive analysis. And we'll dive into that here shortly. Uh, I'm going to take just a two second break. Uh, mostly because we have to stop recording after 30 minutes and switch over to a new one. Um, but you, through the magic of podcasting world, probably won't notice much. Okay, so on to competitive analysis. And if we were a giant podcast, this is where I would have thrown in a, a two-minute ad break and we'd be back to, oh, and we're back. Um, but we're not that. <laughs> we are... A very, very small podcast at this point and just enjoying uh, explaining this whole process to you guys and hopefully you're getting some enjoyment out of it as well. But we are on to competitive analysis. And for me, I think this is probably the most important part of market research. This seems to be the question that if you watch Shark Tank that uh, Mark Cuban loves this question is, you know, who who are your competitors? Um, you know, what is it going to take for them to come in? and do the exact same thing. Why are you unique? You know, what is your market? And it's easy to get customers. There's ways you can find customers you don't even know exist right now. So, but you, competitors and dealing with competitors is always the hardest part. Um, so the first thing, you know, a competitor obviously is anyone who's, who's going to be taking away your potential customers. And that can be directly or secondary indirectly. Um, it might be, for example, we're in the triathlon world. And so you think, well, you know, my competitor is anyone else who puts on triathlon. And that's not necessarily the case. My competitor technically could be um, what it seems pretty adjacent in the endurance world, maybe a Spartan race or a mud run or a 5K. But it's also... Uh, you know, any sort of entertainment situation. So if someone decides that, you know, I'm going to go and do this instead of racing a triathlon, technically that's a secondary competitor, even if it's something that is not even in my market at all. So it's not just understanding who's going to be doing the same things that you are, but it's who's going to be vying for your customer's attention in dollars. Um, in your market specifically, if you're looking there, and again, it's it's really difficult to start branching out into this as, as far reaching as something you know like uh, Six Flags could be a competitor of a triathlon race production company. That's a little bit far reaching for a business plan right now, um, and it's even far reaching for me to think about. It's just it's just too much to think about. How do I keep people from doing that? 
versus coming to a triathlon. You know, we can start considering how do we get people off the couch? How do we keep people from being lazy or a more, uh, you know, just a human condition rather than thinking about something like that. But again, let's just kind of focus on your main market and who are the competitors in that market? If you are going to be a gas station, for example, in the Charlotte, North Carolina market, it's pretty easy. Drive around, see if there's a gas station. They're your competitor. If they're nearby, they're more your competitor. Uh, know who the big brands are. Know who the small guys are. Know who the national uh, chains are and know who the regional franchises are. Understanding that market, again, is very, very important. But do you already have a competition in that market who has a huge revenue share? If so, it's going to be really hard to chip away at that unless you come in with something bigger, better, unique. Um, but again, understanding that helps set you up to know what you need to do. You know, what is your competitor really, really good at? So if you are a taco place and you're thinking about setting up next to uh, here in Greenville, a local place is Willie Taco. Um, they're great. They're wonderful. Great atmosphere, great tequilas, uh, really high quality uh, ingredients. It, it tastes uh, fresh. It's, it's not the freshest organic place in the world, but it's, it, 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 what they do is, is wonderful. So if you're going to be the taco stand that's going to open up, you know, what is Willie Taco, for example, good at? They're great at creating a great atmosphere. I mean, they're packed to the guilds. It's a really neat building. It's open air. Um, they've got great tequila and a really cool bar. It's just, it's, it's fun to go in there. Now, do they have the best tacos in the world? No, not at all. Uh, they, the, you know, they're, I don't think they're fully organic. I don't think they're, uh, a lot of things. So, if I was assessing as a competitor of Willie Taco, what 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 are they good at? I want to do those things uh, as best as I can. But what are they not good at? Um, do they not offer something? Do they not offer fully organic uh, products, for example? Do they not offer shrimp? Do they not offer ground beef? Um, do they not? You know, what is it that they don't do that I can do, so that when someone's saying, "Well, yeah, let's go to Willie Taco." Well, I don't know. They don't offer a ground beef, a classic taco. And I really love that. And, you know, the place across the street does that wonderfully. And I'm really feeling that tonight. So once you can kind of wedge yourself in to the customer's mindset of, of what you do well, because the other guy doesn't do it well, that immediately creates that uniqueness and that divide between your place and their place. The last thing you want to do is come in, try to replicate exactly a Willie Taco, uh, not have the brand recognition, not have the money uh, behind you, not have the size of the client base already, and you're going to fail. So you have to be unique, but you can't get there uh, unless obviously you, you just have a fantastic taco that no one's ever tasted and it's so fantastic. Um, but understand what your competition is good at and what they're bad at. I mean, the, 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 what they're bad at is the most important part here. And if you're considering a business, a lot of times you already know that just from experience, you know what they're bad at and you are probably opening this business because you're sick and tired of not being able to get something good in this particular market. And another thing to think about is, is there a particular window of opportunity for you to enter the market or some other barrier to entry that you're not aware of? You know, start figuring this out. Are there regulations that 
um, your competitors have already had to deal with that you are not going to be able to get into that market? Or is there a window of opportunity time-wise um, that it's very important that you enter the market specifically then, uh, or it will give you a leg up if you enter it then? These are kind of things you need to look at when you're doing your competitive analysis. And there's this thing that, you know, to be quite honest, I was not fully aware of until doing a little bit of research on these SBA and other websites. But um, this is probably something you learn in business school, business classes. But there's this thing called Porter's Five Forces. And the way that it's explained is it's a very macro tool. And what that means is it's looking at the industry. So it's looking macro, large. It's looking at the industry as a whole. And I think if you include this in a business plan, most people are, are, are going to be very impressed that you've, you've taken the time to look through these things and you understand these things about your business and about the market. Um, kind of a more, to give you a, a converse of that, is a more of a micro tool is what's called a SWOT, S-W-O-T. And that just stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. That's more company-based. So you can do a, a SWOT analysis uh, before you get started with a company. Uh, it, it'll be a little bit harder because there's a lot of things you can't answer. Um, but it's a useful tool if you do it kind of with a forecasting model in for a business plan. And then you can do this as you move into business more and more, maybe yearly, uh, maybe every six months. You know, it, you sit down with the powers that be if that's just you. Or if you have some uh, people who work with you in high levels or even just your staff and do that analysis, very useful tool. So again, strengths, obviously, what are your strengths? What are we good at? Weaknesses, what are we bad at? What do we need to improve upon? Opportunities, where are we currently not um, meeting exactly what we should be with profits? Where can we get into to increase those profits and threats? What can hit us so that all of this goes away? or that our profits just go down a slight bit. So doing that. But for this, I think the more important thing is a macro analysis of the industry. And again, that's Porter's Five Forces. You can Google that, um, but it's it's wonderful. So there's the five forces, very simply. Competitive rivalry. Um, how intense is the competition? So if you have super intense competition, it's gonna it's just gonna drive prices way down. You're gonna get into advertising wars, and you can spend yourself into oblivion, um, only to see the other guy spend more. And uh, you know, Pepsi and Coke do a, a, a fantastic job of this, but their market is big enough, and their product is so cheap enough, inexpensive enough, that they can do this. But it's uh, the the soda industry. You see this all the time again on Shark Tank. It's just the food industry, the this industry is so competitive and getting a leg up in that market is really, really hard. And what they're saying is we don't have the time and energy to invest in having to explain to people why they want our product. You know, we want people who are easy to get to. We want a market that uh, we know well, we can get to them easily and we don't have to fight someone else for their attention. The next force after competitive rivalry is the bargaining power of suppliers. And again, this is getting a little bit more in depth than you might want. But if this is in a business plan and I'm an investor, I'm really taking notice and thinking this, you know, this, this person has done a really good job of uh, understanding their market before we, we go into market. But again, bargaining power of suppliers. Uh, the one thing I saw online was Under Armour in their example is 
you know, on the competitive rivalry, the intense competition in that market. Um, but Under Armour does a really good job. So if you've got five of these things before we dive into this, if you've got five of these things, you can be poor at one and kind of excel in the others. And sometimes that'll offset, but the bargaining power of suppliers, what Under Armour does is they create multiple suppliers, a, multi, a supply chain, multiple directions. So if, if one supplier either goes offline or, um, has a huge problem at a factory or their costs go way up, they can just say, well, we're going to shift, you know, supply over to this supplier who can give us these prices that we want. And what that really does is it gives you more bargaining power over your suppliers. You don't want to screw anyone. You want your suppliers to be taken care of and you want them to be able to do well in business. Um, but at the same time, you don't want them to have power over you. So a balance of power, which is a great thing, uh, is wonderful in business. And, you know, of course, you want to have a little bit more bargaining power, which means more suppliers. The other bargaining piece of this, bargaining power piece of this is in the hands of the customer. And what sort of bargaining uh, power do they have? Do they have the ability to simply say, you know, we're not coming in until you lower your prices? Or do you have power over them by saying, well, that's fine. There's, you know, 50 other people waiting in line to get this. I mean, this is uh, just a simple explanation of what we kind of see in general and intuitively understand. If um, no one's coming into your store and you get one um, person to come into your store, that person has a lot of power over you. But if you, you know, if they come in and say, hey, you know, I don't want to pay uh, the, the $19.99 that you're, uh, you've got that price for on the shelf. I want to pay $9.99. And if you're, they're the only customer you've seen all day, they have a little bit more power and ability to kind of make that negotiation with you. However, if there's 50 people in line outside the store and someone says, I want it for $19.99, more than likely the guy behind him says, oh, well, you know, I'll buy it for $25.99. And so you have more power in that case. Um, but again, fewer customers and then in a larger sense, um, more sellers give more power to the customer uh, because it, it becomes easier for them to switch loyalties. Uh, if there's 16, um, you know, willy taco type situations, it's easy for the people to bounce back and forth. But if there's only one or two, uh, the, the consumer has less power. Um, the other factor, number four, or the force, I guess, is the threat of new entry. And, you know, what that means is how easy is it for competitors to join that market? Um, if there's easy entry, that's going to just equate to more competitors. So think about it if you are a landscaping company, or let's say if you're a pressure washing company, um, what is the barrier to entry? The barrier to entry is about $400 to go to Lowe's or Home Depot and get a basic pressure washer and maybe some flyers. So $100 at Kinko's. I don't even know if Kinko's exists, FedEx office. Um, so that's a very low barrier of entry. So your competition, you can't expect it to be higher. So if you understand that going in, you need to explain to someone who will be financing your company with that low barrier of entry, this is how I'm going to be unique and stand out. And I'm going to make it so that people who get into the business can't copy, can't replicate, can't be as good as me. And again, you see this on Shark Tank all the time. You know, how are you going to stand out? What makes you unique? And the fifth force in Porter's Five Forces is the threat of substitute products. 
Um, how easy is it for a customer to switch to a new product? For example, if you are, and again, you see this on uh, Shark Tank all the time. If you are a sugar company and you sell uh, basic raw sugar, it's going to be really easy for someone to switch to another sugar. I've never had a sugar um, that I was just blown away with. I mean, there's different types of sugars. Obviously, there's pure cane sugar. There's refined sugar. There's processed sugar. But ultimately, if you put it in your sweet tea, it mostly tastes the same, right? So it's really easy for people to switch to another product. And therefore, you generally see prices in that situation below um, and not... Um, you know, there's not a lot of people who are itching to get into the sugar business for that very reason. It's got to be very difficult. Um, you know, what that means is you look at the number of competitors, uh, their ability to lower prices and costs and the customer's inclination to change. So those are the things you consider in the thread of substitute products. So how do you deal with those things? Those are the five forces. And how do you deal with them? There's three things that I saw on the SBA website that were really important, and this will close us out for this episode. But, you know, be a leader in cost. Cost leadership is number one. Your goal, there's three ways you can make money in business, right? You can increase price, you can decrease costs, or you can capture more of the market. Um, but to be a leader in cost, a cost leadership situation is to increase profits and decrease costs or gain more of the market share. And you do that by being a leader in costs, pricing, uh, how much you spend, those kind of things. Differentiation, it just that's simple. How are you different? How are you unique? What are you going to do? What is your product that makes you stand out above anyone else? Is it great customer service? You know, you look at GoDaddy. Uh, why are they the leader in URL uh, acquisition. Why do they make so much money selling URLs to people? One, they did a great job of marketing. They spent a ton of money back in the day on Super Bowl ads. And two, uh, their customer service is hands down the best customer service I've ever dealt with. Just the best. You can talk to someone who understands you. You can talk to someone who wants you to succeed. I mean, they're passionate about what they do. And that's why they stand out. It's not because when you buy their URL, all of a sudden, or URL from them, all of a sudden that you you get more traffic or anything like that. It's 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 those two things that differentiate them from anyone else. Again, lots of costs involved there. So can you differentiate yourself in a less expensive way than spending a million dollars for thirty seconds um, on a Super Bowl ad? I'm sure it's ten million now. And then the other one is focus. Um, the best thing that I've ever heard is. A laser is just light, but it's really, really focused, and it can do a lot of damage uh, or a lot of good, but it can create a lot of energy because it's very, 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 very focused. Uh, so find a unique niche for your product or for your service. You know, is it, you know, triathlon, for example, for us is a niche market. It is... At one time, it was growing uh, exponentially, but it still was a very, very small number of people, and the market was very, very small. But those people had a lot of things in common, um, and they really, really, really were passionate about their hobby, about their lifestyle. And so that uh, translates into a great uh, kind of stable business. So find that niche 
and uh, and create that focus for your company and and you'll be successful so include all of these things as much of this as you can into your business plan and it will help you tremendously as you move forward looking into investment So that's it for our episode today. Uh, we will be back next week and talking about financing with one of my good friends, uh, Sherry Martin Kennard. And I cannot wait to talk to her about uh, how to finance your business. So until then, keep living the dream. We'll see you.